Kia ora everyone and welcome to Dirty Dirty Talk, talk oh, podcast. Wow. I can't get it right today. <laughs> Kia ora and welcome to Dirty Dirty Talk podcast. You're listening to me, Bex and... And Mike. Um, this week we have a clinical psychologist, Quirbus, on the show. We ask him about working in a prison, so he works in a prison. Um, we asked him about New Zealand's response to the COVID stuff from a sort of psycholog- psychologist perspective. <laughs> And we kind of break it down a little bit after that with a bit of a chat. But first, we've got a few like weekly headlines, some things in the news you may have missed. We do. So we'll start with the odd COVID and get that out the way. As we all know, we're into day eight of a level four lockdown. But it's good to know that we're finally making international headlines for all the right reasons. Chris Hipkins knows that exercise is really important. Look, it is a challenge in higher density areas for people to get outside and to uh, spread their legs when they are... um, uh... However, he gently reminded us to ensure that we are spreading our legs in low density areas. This top-notch advice has taken the world by storm. Leg spreading. It's a challenge for the best of us. In other COVID news, we're navigating the possibility of a North-South Island separation. I know that's something... South Island to be mourning for oh, a long man. time, Mike. Guys, I've had like, I've had, <laughs> some of my friends have been talking about this for ages. Yeah. They're like, the mainlanders are going to go start our own country. It's crazy. Yeah, anyway. Anyway, um, unfortunately, we've been having some thieves taking advantage of lockdown situations. So we're having to protect our parcels and our cars at the moment. And we've also been reflecting on lockdown 2.0 narrative where the first community case hails from the North Shore rather than South Auckland, that old double-standard chestnut. Well, I mean, actually, just really quickly while we're in there, Mm. um, I heard figures this morning that 50% of the people that have got COVID so far in this outbreak have been Pacifica people. Interesting. So, yeah, anyway. Anyway, moving on to just a little bit of a good-feel news for us. Abbas Nazari was just seven years old when his family started a treacherous journey to escape the Taliban. Rescued by the Tampa cargo ship from a sinking boat, he was eventually brought to New Zealand, thanks to Helen Clark, and he was offered a home here in New Zealand alongside 130 others. Abbas has just released his book, which is really awesome. I can't wait to get my hands on that, actually. And this is documenting his amazing journey from a refugee to a Fulbright scholar. His 20-year anniversary of seeking refuge in New Zealand unfortunately comes at a time when his people are once again fleeing the Taliban. Some also good news. Well, well is that good news? Uh, it's Depends news. on who it's for. <laughs> yeah, it's news. Um, OnlyFans. Everyone, people might know of OnlyFans. Basically some weird like place where you subscribe to people and they do stuff, like watch people cook and also other things. And other things. And other things. OnlyFans is banning sexual acts from its platform after it found it difficult to acquire new investment and had pressure from some of their banking partners. Apparently, OnlyFans have been trying to raise new capital, but venture capitalists aren't so keen as they see a perception issue with the platform being associated with porn and potentially even child porn. What happened was basically they had a bunch of kids um, join the platform Mm. and fake their details the age and basically for those who don't know what OnlyFans is it's where you like people upload stuff and they do videos and chat and everything and you can kind of subscribe to them for sort of like a a fee but um they went through and they tried to get rid of the this sort of element of it but they Mm. it's kind of the the perception thing's kind of stuck with them and so they're trying to find out some trying to find some more capital um but people don't really want to be involved with pornography so you know, if you're into like OnlyFans, there's still nudity, so you can still get your fix. Right. Well, <laughs> I look at you like you. Thank God for that. I guess. Yeah, like, <laughs> <laughs> How long is this pod gonna last? Because um. Yeah. All right. So over to our pals in Palestine and Israel, two people are in critical condition, including a 13-year-old boy who was shot in the head. Young Palestinians in Gaza were protesting when the Israeli forces decided they'd start shooting them, basically. Something that we've seen before, unfortunately. So apparently they were rioters who were trying to climb the fence between Israel and Gaza and hurling explosives. Thus, the military deemed appropriate to open live fire. Cool. Right. Cool. (laughs) As you do. It's not not cool at all. Um, 
And finally, just real quickly, I have to leave. <laughs> gotta leave. Gotta leave you guys with some really awesome news. Um, a top story from the Southland Times uh, recently: a 16-year-old gore boy <laughs> received a national award from the Minister of Health last week. Lorenzo Cham- <laughs> Lorenzo Chambers <laughs> received a framed certificate for his volunteering to help young people with disabilities. All right. Wait, wait, wait. Can you get it out? Yeah, it. His grandfather, Mark Owens, is really proud of him. He said, quote, We're really proud of him. What a great day for Gore. That's it. That's it. Honestly, God, fucking, that's actually like Mike, an article. Mike is losing it over here. He has been frothing to say this for like the last two days since he saw it. In oh, the news. that's so funny. Because uh, I, mean, I don't know if anyone's noticed, but there's basically nothing else in the news <laughs> apart from COVID. So I was like searching through all the, you know, regional news stuff. And I came across this article. I was like, no way. A, a Gore boy gets a framed certificate. And then I was like, oh, we have to finish off this uh, this um, this article with like a quote from somebody who's proud of him. I know there's going to be one. And then sure, <laughs> sure enough, enough. At, at the bottom, there's, you know, Mark Owen's grandfather. <laughs> I was really proud of him. Thank God for Gore. Oh my God. Anyway, <clears throat> um, so those are the headlines. Bex, take it away. So today we have Quibus on the show. Quibus is a clinical psychologist who has over 20 years' experience in psychotherapy and counselling in South Africa. He recently moved to New Zealand, where he is now a senior psychologist within a corrections facility. He also happens to be a colleague of mine. Welcome to Dirty Duty Talk, Quibus. Thank you, Bex. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for having me. How's it going, Quervis? Yeah, lockdown is a lot easier here than it uh, than I remember back in SA. So yeah, all good in the bubble. So um, I just wanted to kick things off with a little bit of uh, sort of background stuff. Um, like I think a lot of people have heard of a clinical psych- psychologist, but could you define what that is exactly? And also, what is psychotherapy? I don't. It's one of those words that's thrown around quite a bit. Mm, I think there's a lot of definitions around psychotherapy in the international arena. I've come to learn that in New Zealand, psychotherapy is something different from psychology. And um, there are specific universities that train people up as psychotherapists versus psychologists. I think in a universal sense, psychotherapy is the the talking art. Um, I've got a bit of a theory going in the background that it's a specialized conversation and um, that we utilize specialized conversations in different contexts for coaching, mentoring, counseling, and also then for psychotherapy. So I think my one-sentence version is a specialized conversation in helping people understand themselves. Outside of the New Zealand context, I would like to see psychotherapy as part of the role of a psychologist. And psychologists often have very different roles. Um, In our setting, we've got the forensic, you've got the counseling, you've got educational spaces that we work in. But a generic term for the work we do underlying is often referred to as psychotherapy. So people will come with something that is regarded in general terms as an issue or something that they want to improve on. They then present it to the psychologist and helps them literally unpack it and then repack it so that it works better. This, is, this, is this something about like, my understanding, because I took psychology when I was in high school, um, you know, quite a few years ago, <laughs> and I, some part of it was about like Freud and, and what he got up to is, you know, do you, are you, do you dig Freud? Are you, are you one of his fans? And also, do you have one of those couches? I think they're called like a, a psychoanalytic couch. Do you have one of those at home? Hey, Mike, the funniest thing is in my private practice, I had a couch, a normal couch. Yeah. And the amount of people that walk in and ask me, should they sit or lie down? It's just crazy. But anyway, it's a, it's a funny perception people have. But look, the point is Freud in his own time was a paradigm pioneer in thought and in philosophy. And uh, if we look at the neuroscience today, many of the concepts that he intuitively dealt with back then is now actually proven through neuroscience. I always encourage people, before we critique somebody, go and actually read the original version of what they read and wrote, um, because we often get the second, third-hand version in a textbook saying, Freud sucks, and then we didn't read the 23 volumes he actually wrote and applied his mind. 
So as with any theory, there's parts that work, there's parts that we modify, and there's parts that we can chuck. And I think in the journey of every psychotherapist, psychologist, you have to find your way through the maze of hundreds of different theories. And Freud definitely had his place, but I don't think I'm strictly a Freudian. I don't have a pipe and I don't have a couch. <laughs> nice. Now what? No, yeah, okay, cool. <laughs> so, Quibus, you've spent a lot of time in private practice in South Africa. I'm interested in knowing what brought you to New Zealand and how on earth did you end up working in a prison? It's a funny story, Bex. I've been trying to get into New Zealand probably for three years before it happened and tried various avenues. <clears throat> Back in the day, I really had this unction to get into corrections. And um, the Department of Corrections and I had a little dance going backwards and forwards and nothing came of it. And then one day, somebody said to me, they've got this position for a facilitator, which is not what I'm looking for, but let's try get a foot in the door and then we go from there. And then the placement agent came back to me and said, she, she thinks the guy that's going to phone me actually knows me. So it turns out Franchel was a student of mine about 20 years ago at the university. And I did a little cameo appearance there talking about trauma and serial murder, which was my dissertation for my master's degree. And um, <laughs> yeah, and so I did a few, few cameo appearances at the varsity. So Franchel phones me from New Zealand and says, Gribus, you're coming over. And that's where the journey started. Amazing. And just so the listeners know, Francois is one of our managers at work. That's amazing, Quibus. So that was really a dream of yours to get into the correction setting for quite some time. That's right, yeah. And what is it that you do exactly at the prison? Hmm. What I'm doing and what I was employed to do is already two different things. But typically what psychologists in our role do with the prisons is we do assessments on people so that we can actually assess their risks, their needs, and their responsibilities. In other words, in layman's terms, what do they need to get back into society and reintegrate into society? What blocks that journey? And how do we unblock that journey for them? And the other part that we also do then is obviously treat people for whatever it is that they need on that journey. Is that measurable? Sorry, mm -hmm. is, just as a random question as an aside, is it like, so you're saying, you know, your role is to help facilitate people to get back into society and stuff like that through your means and you said sort of the art of talking. Um, is it measurable? I mean, how do you measure that? Like, you know, I go and do whatever things, these all kind of have quite, how to put it, material, I guess, um, measurable outcomes. As a psychologist within a prison, how do you, how do, you do that? So, look, there, there are various measures in which one can, can actually gauge people's state of readiness. So, one would be psychometric assessments. So, within the prison system and in psychology, we have various psychometrics that actually help us gauge where people are. Um, these psychometric assessments are always evaluated in terms of their predictive validity. So, anything with uh, 0.7 and up is usually regarded as quite good, which means if I test 100 people, about 70 people who are similar will test similar on that same assessment. Like with any human science, there's no, it's not cost, it's not 100% exact. And if you look at the, the infinite complexity of being human, this is just simplified ways of understanding bits and pieces, slithers of who we are in certain contexts. And by no means would any psychometry ever be the final word on anyone. You have to look at the history. You have to look at their behavior within the system. You have to look at what they've done in the educational space, how they're interacting with people. You put all of that together, and it gives you um, what we would refer to as a, a guesstimation uh, based on the science that we have and what is acceptable. And there's always a bit of a, a jostle between what science is and what is acceptable and on the other end, what's working. And that's one of the things that we're really working hard at behind the scenes to get that conversation smoother. Yeah, interesting. Eh? I mean, it's one thing I kind of think about quite a lot. You know, it's, it's quite a, and there is sort of a scientific background behind it, but it's also mm -hmm. quite hard to sort of equate that to measurable outcomes. 
Mm, um, I always think of psychology and psychotherapy as the art and the science of. Mm. There must be artistry in there and there must be science. You can't have the one without the other. Kind of like an intersection mm. mix. Mm. Mm. For sure. Um, as a random, as a, as a, as a, as a psychologist, um, could you give us some insights as to why people commit crime? Well, <laughs> uh, it's pretty pretty vague and open question. So, you know, just take a stab at it. <laughs> yeah, right. Look. Unintended. Jokes. I think let's, <laughs> uh, yeah. let's, let's take it to something really simple. Why do anyone do what they do? Criminal or non-criminal. And that takes us into understanding what motivates people. It asks the question about how we change and why we change. So let's take something simple. If I would ask a room full of people, do you know that it's good for you to exercise, have a regular exercise regime? Everybody would be nodding their head. And then I ask, okay, who of you do have a regular exercise regime? Then less heads nod. So we often refer to that as cognitive dissonance. So some of us end up thinking about stuff that wouldn't be good for us and for other people. Then there are those that get stuck in those thought patterns and it becomes a bit of a, a thought spiral. And eventually some of those people then act on what they are thinking. I think in the modern era, I often say to people, we should be thinking what we're thinking about. We should think what we say, think twice before we speak and think three times before we post. So I think it starts with something as simple as thinking about what you're thinking about. And if you know that you have dangerous thoughts, then that's the starting point of managing it. And I think a lot of people don't for various reasons, and they end up acting on those thoughts. And that's where crime comes from. I think that's really interesting, Kubis. I'm, I'm also interested because you're a fairly, fairly new immigrant to New Zealand. And I'm mm. wondering from the insights that you've had so far, what do you think are some of the societal factors specific to New Zealand that can play a part in leading someone to go down the journey or the pathway of committing crime? Mm. Well, that, that is really as, as wide or as long as a piece of string. So <clears throat> if you want outsider observations, I think there is some clear societal and political divides within the community. And I think obviously through the experience with the people that we work with, you clearly see that some people from certain cultural backgrounds have had real struggles in their upbringing in terms of what they have access to. And there were systems in place that really disadvantaged people. So without getting to too much of an integrity, I think the, the model that we use really clearly says that you should consider the state of somebody's mind, the state of their physical existence, their spiritual and uber existence, and then also their connection in terms of society and family. And you can never just view somebody as an island. You always need to look at people in the context. And I think every country has their own context. And that context comes with a mixed bag. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, New Zealand is one of the safest countries in the world. I think next to Canada and Iceland and some places where there aren't people, you guys are really high up. We are really high up on the, the safety ladder here. But it doesn't mean that there aren't issues. Um, in the context of South Africa, we're quite low down on the safety, but we've got issues there. And we've also got perks there that we are further ahead in some areas and you guys are further ahead in other areas. So, yeah, it's a, it's a tough conversation, but I think there's many factors that lead people down the garden path to crime. Right. So I'm hearing that it can be a combination of individual factors as well as societal and political factors as well. That can mean that someone is more likely to commit crime. For sure. For sure. And I think you'll get that picture in any part of the world where you go, that there would be 
a stereotypical view of people who are more inclined to get involved in crime. But if you, if you unpack the stereotype, you will find history, you will find dynamics, you'll find politics, you'll find issues that have been brewing for generations. And then obviously the, the issues of here and now and the individual in that context. So given the complex nature of criminality, Quibus, do you think that people can actually change their ways? Those who have spent years committing crimes, what kind of stories do you see when it comes to their reintegration and, and their outcomes when they're back in society? When you speak like that, you remind me of uh, Gary Larson, Farside. And there's this picture of the, the front seat in the circus with this high wire balancing act and a dog walking across a, a high wire balancing uh, wire with a pole. And the caption says, one thing went through Rex's mind. He's an old dog and this is a new trick. Mm. So I think the question is, how do we teach people to change their way? First of all, I think people need to have, for me, my personal philosophy around decision-making is there's what we want to do, the evolution, the drive. There's what we can do, our abilities and skills. There's what we are allowed to do. And then there's what we should do. And I'm a believer that none of us are cast in stone. Definitely soft determinism. We can change our way. There are certain things that's above our pay grade that we can't touch. But there are definitely in everyone's life, there are things that we can change. If we can't change the nature of it, we can at least change the degree of it. So if I am impoverished, I can at least be stable and not at the top end of the economic scale, but I can at least be economically stable by doing certain things. If I want to change my physical appearance, if I have incapacities, I can still work around those incapacities and make my physique the best it can be with my incapacities. And the same with crime. There's, if there's willingness, if there's a pathway for people, if they are enabled, in other words, they can do it, I think anybody can change. Yes, I've often been called on the rosy glass effect and being the arch optimist, but I think if we had to believe that people cannot change, we would be so much worse off than carrying the beacon of hope that people can actually change. And I'm a firm believer that the more we look for opportunity, the more we find opportunity. And I think that's the challenge within any system is we all know what's wrong. Let's find what's right. Let's find new ways of making things right. Yeah, super interesting. Eh? That's really pretty cool, mm-hmm. I think. Because oh, it basically means that you know you can change. And I think, you know, if it, like you said, the last little bit's like, if it's all sort of predetermined, it's like, it's a bit, it's a bit hopeless, you know? And we kind of mm. just go, oh, we're stuck in our own, we're stuck in our own lot, you know, which is a bit, bit, I don't know, yeah, hopeless. Mike, one of my textbooks in psychology had a picture on the front. It was a textbook on abnormal psychology and a picture of a lady's face, but probably supersized. It's a massive A3 textbook. And on the back, page it said this picture is larger than life because we believe that people are bigger than their problems and it's how we narrate the story if i say that i am a depressive that's an identity statement it means i'm encapsulated by it i cannot escape it if i say i suffer from depression immediately i'm changing my storyline and very often people narrate their own storyline without giving it second thought of what they are speaking over themselves and what they're saying about themselves. So very often in psychotherapy, it's interrupting the story, making people think about how they narrate their story because we all have a story. We all have a role to play in that story. Um, But we often do it mindlessly. Really interesting stuff. Tell me, Quibus, in your job, which are the parts that you enjoy, like, you know, with, because you have a pretty interesting job. Um, and which are the parts that you find more difficult? Monotony has always been my worst enemy. <laughs> so administration and everything that goes with that is not really my friend. But the part I really enjoy is that we're doing research currently on a Maori tikanga. And it's something that we're doing across 
our estate and we are doing preliminary research on that to see the impact of that in terms of people's readiness to change. And we've seen the preliminary results show incredible yields, up to 80% reduction in people's uh, misconduct. But the one thing that's very interesting is that as the misconduct went down, the creativity went up because people are now tattooing more than ever before. So we're looking at the, the opportunity space. So if people are tattooing and that's getting them into trouble, one of the things we've recently, as recent as last week, stumbled on, I said to one of the managers, so if they're tattooing, why don't we identify the people that are tattooing? And since we are sponsoring people for tattoo removals, why don't we train them up in laser technology to actually become the artists who remove the tattoos from their fellow inmates? So to me, that's a great example of operating in that abundance mindset of looking for opportunity rather than what's wrong. We've got enough critics. Um, we've got enough critics inside and outside of the arena. Um, I'd rather be thinking critical, but being focused on solutions. It's pretty cool, eh? And I wonder, um, I don't know, because you see these, these um, what do you call them? Do you call them prin- prisoners or inmates or I don't know. What, what, what's the terminology there? I'd actually like, like to That's know. That's a philosophical question. What should we call them, Mike? Yeah, I don't know. I, don't, I mean, mm. inmates and prisoners, or, I mean. That's a really good question. At the moment, we're kind of leaning to calling them, if you work in a men's prison, men in our care. Men in our care, yeah. Or mm. women in our care. But it really, like Quibbis has just said, it's a real philosophical debate going on now in the correction system. Yeah, because I'm reading my question here. It's like, do you think you'd ever become friends with a prisoner? If you wrote, if I rewrote that as... Do you think you could ever become friends with one of the men in your care? Mm. It wholly mm. reframes the reframes the question. Exactly. I don't know. So let's ask the, so the question in both terms of I don't know. Could could you ever become friends with um, one of the one of the men in in, in your uh, in your care? And, and and do you like them generally? <laughs> it's a bit of a cheeky question, but I think I'd ask anyway. I think inversely we can ask the question like, how many of your friends could be men in care? <laughs> so. I think the difference often between us and them is they got caught. There's a lot of people out there that walk around and never got caught and also skid on the thin blue line. But I think the reality is when we suspend judgment and morality and we meet people at the humanity, you discover amazing things. One of the guys, <clears throat> when I went to introduce myself for the research, um, he is part of the Runonga, the the tribal elders that run the show on the ground. I said to him, I'm going to do research. And his response was, well, I said it to the group. He got up and he he gave the speech. He said, I don't like the word research. Re means to do it again. And search means something is lost. What we're doing here, we don't have to do it again. It's been done for ages and it's not lost. We know exactly what it is. You find gems in people when you connect with the humanity. Obviously, good fences makes good neighbors. And the common wisdom is around the relevancy of boundaries. I think in the psychological space, that is true. But there are challenges because boundaries can also keep the good stuff out. And the question is, if we truly want to rehabilitate people, how do we do relationships differently? Um, I think wisdom should prevail. There are people, even in my circle of friends, that I would keep at an arm's length because they may not be as good for me or my, my immediate family as I would want it to be. But then there are those people that you discover along the way. And yeah, for sure. I think, well, let's put it this way. <clears throat> um, the guy that introduced this whole new Tikanga to us is an ex-prisoner and we've spent so much time together and he reminds me of a good old friend of mine and I would definitely be able to become friends with him. So the question is just because there's a wire separating us because they've got a prison prisoner number and I don't. I don't think it precludes a friendship. It's so interesting. Something that really just struck me there, Kubis, is this idea that some of our own friends and people that we know could be prisoners, but some get caught and some don't. And 
I feel like we could spend so much time on the subject and we are going to move on soon. But I just want to ask this last question before we do. Why is it that some people end up in prison when others don't? <laughs> I think some are luckier than others. Some are cleverer than others. And <clears throat> some have access to better resources. If I look at some of people in prisons and you read their files, you think if you had a proper lawyer, you might not have had the sentence. You might not even be in here. Um, and I mean, within, within criminology and sociology, you always have different perspectives. And there's always a, a counter perspective. We look at the system and you, you can see how broken the system is and how selective the system is. But at the end of the day, as a society, we still need a system. And if you go back through all generations of humanity, we had systems to keep us safe. We had systems to sanction certain behaviors and promote other behaviors. Thank God that our, our systems have become a little bit more sophisticated and it's not take you to the nearest tree and hang your eye because I don't like you. So the system is not perfect, but the system has also evolved a lot. And again, uh, my, my advocacy would be Let's be solution finders. Let's be pioneers of the paradigm and see where we can take it. Absolutely. And that's something I really respect about you is that you're really innovative and creative in this space. So, gosh, we could spend so much time talking about this and we might just have to get you back on again to unpack the, the prison issues and system in more detail. But we're mm. going to move on now to something really current. As we know, mm. we're a week now into a full lockdown. And we are in the process of trying to eliminate data from the community. From a psychological point of view, what do you make of New Zealand's response to COVID-19 so far? And I mean that both in terms of our government policies, but also Kiwi attitudes to it. I think at the moment I'm closer to, to the general attitude than to the politics and policies. I think the fact that there's decisive decision-making at the top is fantastic. Um, you, cannot, you cannot be sitting twiddling your thumbs when something is going viral. So the decisiveness, I think, is something we can value from, from the political perspective. What really, what's really interesting for me, I went to the pharmacy this morning to get some meds for, for the whanau, and um, it just struck me how many people are actually non-compliant. And it made me think about the, the general attitude. I mean, not everybody you see on the street walking without a mask is exercising. There's a lot of people out and about that's just non-compliant. And that's, that's a little bit of a riddle for me because I find the New Zealand culture very compliant by sticking the box is a very big thing. And yet there's almost this, I was wondering about this morning, is it the sense of untouchable? This, this doesn't really affect us um, because a lot of people show up in their behavior like it's not really an issue. Whereas if you look at the South African situation, we had this thing go viral overnight. We had slow decision-making and we had a large portion, portion of the, the community being non-compliant and we had people die in droves. And <clears throat> yeah, it just made me wonder about the fact of this, this being so special that we're untouchable if that is something that lies somewhere in the sentiment. Yeah, for sure. Hey, hey, Quibus, I'm interested. As a Kiwi, I have found it quite difficult going into a lockdown and, and coming to accept the fact that this has now touched New Zealand. Like you've mm. said, because we are very lucky, we're very blessed in this corner of the world. Um, we haven't had to go through... Um, many things like you have in places like South Africa, for example. Um, and so having to deal with COVID-19 and a pandemic on our doorstep has really shaken people up. Mm. So in, in terms of that, when we think about how this might be impacting on people and the challenges that they might be facing in a lockdown, how do you think they can look after their mental health and well-being during this time? That's a fascinating question. <clears throat> I think in psychology, there's a, there's a few activities that we do to get to understand ourselves better. 
the healthy one would be to do introspection. Lockdown mentally takes you into a place of introspection. But there's a negative version of introspection. That's when we get stuck too deep, too far for too long. And that is what we refer to as rumination. So you're chewing the same piece of cut over and over and over and not going anywhere. I think the reality for a lot of people is a lot of people, we talk in COVID of people with comorbidities. And we often refer to that as age, um, other illness. But I think your state of mind is also a comorbidity. People that have been in prison before struggle with lockdown. It feels like they're in prison. People with depression struggle with isolation. People with anxiety struggle with the uncertainty of what's next. So every everyone, each to their own, with their, their, their own weaknesses and comorbidities, are affected differently during lockdown. I think if you look at the way we think about things, um, the phenomenology says, when you are well, you outlive your own bodliness. You live ahead of your own bodliness. If you're physically well, you think of what you're going to do this afternoon and what you're going to do when you get home. When you're sick, you are cast back into your own bodliness. You can't escape your own body. And COVID kind of collectively does that to us. Without being physically sick, without contracting the disease, we all collectively and emotionally and psychologically deal with that thing of we're impaired. We are put backwards and we are stuck inside ourselves and with ourselves. I think that's just on the individual level. I think for a lot of people, home isn't always the most pleasant place. People that struggle with relational issues in the home place or where home is not equipped to be 24-7, 365. It's really hard because work is actually the escape. So I think there are many, many variants. I think we metaphorically speak about the Delta variant, but psychologically there's an A to Z variant of how we deal with this whole phenomena of lockdown. Right. So it sounds like the state of our mind is really, really important in, in helping us mm. to navigate this and get us through. Definitely. And I think managing our state of mind, um, I often think of the metaphor of your sport events where you have the high definition backplay of, of little clips where the score was, where a try was scored or where a try was converted. You watch it in slow motion replay. I think we have the same ability with ourselves. And I, I think if I can give anybody a, a quick on how to manage your mental health. As people, we have the ability to be on the dance floor and watch ourselves dancing at the same time. Psychology calls it your observing ego. So I can be thinking about stuff and I can be thinking about how I think about stuff. And I often say to people in coaching, unless your thoughts are taking you forward to new and more constructive stuff, and sometimes you have to go through the the valley of despair to get to the destructive stuff or to the constructive stuff. But if you're not consistently moving forward in your thoughts, then you need to ask, why am I thinking this? And why am I thinking about this in this way? And if I think about it this time again, would it take me forward or backwards? And it's just that ability to self-regulate, especially when we are a little bit isolated during lockdown. Corbis, that's uh, pretty good advice. I'm going to think about that when I go to sleep tonight. My, I'll listen to my own podcast. I don't do that. I seriously don't. I, yeah, <laughs> that's really, really, really cool. Um, heaps in there to, to unpack. I, I think we have to get you on for like a part three, a part four, a part 20, because, I mean, you just said you did a dissertation on serial murders. I mean, like, yeah. there's like six podcasts right in there. So... Um, <laughs> Really, 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 really interesting chat and really appreciate you coming on and, and, and spending some time with us um, chatting about it. Like Mike said, man, we have to get you back on here. There's so much there that you've said that we can unpack further, um, particularly around the prison system, around mental health. We will definitely be hearing from you again. Awesome. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, guys. Thank you very much. Thanks, Corpus. All right, Mike, I don't know about you, but I just felt like we could have kept talking for hours and hours on that. Such interesting discussion. 
Um, something that I found really interesting was what Quirbus started to kind of get into, which is around why people commit crime, whether people can change. What were your thoughts on that? I thought it was really cool, actually. Um, I I also sort of follow that line of reasoning. I mean, you don't want to... People are able to be changed, and, and you sort of change the the um, circumstances around how they live, and it's you know it can it can happen. I thought what he was talking about with using Maori tikanga as well, which is really really cool. Um, you know, that's another way of looking at it, and I think these are all really valuable perspectives um, inside of like trying to change people's sort of habits around crime. I mean, you work in you work in the industry. What do you what did you think? Absolutely, yeah. I think we we didn't really have time to get into it. Um, but when we look at our prison system and who makes up our prisons, we know that it's very disproportionate. So we know that we have over fifty percent of Maori who make up our prison system. Only even though they make up a very small percentage of the general population. And so, like what Kubis was saying, is we have to ask ourselves: What are some of the societal and political factors? that feed into whether people go on to commit crime or not. Um, it's very complex, as he, as, he, as he spoke to. I think his approach to it is a very positive and hopeful one in that he believes that we can help give people tools to make changes. And I totally agree with that. But I was also asking during that interview is what can we as a society do as well to increase the chance of someone doing well when they leave prison? What do you think? I don't know. You're you're a social good prison in a way. Like, <clears throat> what's the difference between what you do and he does, and what he does? And also, like, I mean, are there are there, are there issues around gender with you mm. as a woman working at a prison versus um, Quibus? I don't know how that would work. I mean, I've actually never been to a prison before. I'd like to go. I'm gonna do a tour actually. Like, he's coming and you know, hey guys, just here for a tour. <laughs> Fuck's sake, gotta get out of here. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, in terms of like the difference between what you guys, what you do as a social worker and what he does as a, as a psychologist, is there any difference? And also, yeah, as I said, like, what's the difference between genders and, and, and how you see it? Yeah, I think two really good questions. So, I am a social worker. My job, instead of doing assessments like risk assessments, like Quibus does, his job is to, I guess, determine whether someone is safe enough to be let out into the community. So that's not what I do. What I do is I run these kind of rehabilitation programs where we are giving these men, I work in a men's prison, so we were giving the men tools um, and strategies to be able to navigate life once they leave prison, but also to self-reflect and to understand a little bit about why they did what they did, what were some of the factors, what will some of their high-risk situations be, things like that. So I guess one of the limitations of being a social worker inside a prison is that it's not really as holistic as we would like it to be. We're only working with that one person. We're not able to work with their families, with the communities. So it can feel at times, um, it can feel like we're not really addressing all the issues and all the challenges that they're going to face when they leave. We can only kind of do our little bit. Um, Yeah, I mean, you guys aren't, I mean, for for an um, a man in your care, or however you that terminology. Um, you're only a small, well, not a small, a pretty big part of the equation, but you are only a part of the equation. You know, like you, you're not. When they leave and they try to, they struggle and find housing. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like you need all of those sort of other wraparound services. So it's pretty. Do you, yeah. That's the thing, and and it's interesting you say that you'd love to, you know, do a tour. Um, and kind of see what it's like in a prison. And I, I as someone who work, works there, I would actually kind of like that too, for you and others to be able to see it. Open day? Open day, <laughs> prison open day. No, no, like, yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting when you work in that place, you ask yourself, why have all these people been put together in one place? How is that ever going to work? Um, you know, we, we talk about prisons keeping people safe and keeping um, these people from doing future harm. But because they're all in there together with the same kind of antisocial thinking and attitudes, sometimes I end up encouraging one another. Um, I also can see how it can be like a gang recruitment as well because it's a really hard place for particularly young people to survive. Um, so, yeah, those are some wider some wider questions and it'd be awesome to have Corvus back on the pod to 
unpack that a little bit more. Um, but going back to your question around being a female, that's a really interesting one. Um, I've definitely had my experiences being a female working in a men's prison. I think there's pros and cons. Like one of the, the cool things about being there as a female is that I can role model a healthy relationship between a man and a woman. And that can be something quite different. And when I say that, I mean being able to work in a non-judgmental way with these men. So what did you think about um, Quibus's sort of take on 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 New Zealand lockdown and, and how and more generally like how, how that whole thing went? Yeah, I thought that was really interesting, especially um, him briefly touching on the differences between here and South Africa. And what he's noticed is that as New Zealanders, because... We are often very far removed what's going on in the rest of the world. We kind of feel like the sense of um, being in the untouchables. And so when something like this happens, it, 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 it shakes us and we don't always know how to respond. Um, found it interesting he was talking about that level of compliance as well. Some Kiwis um, finding it hard to really comply to these new rules that we have on us. Yeah, it's going to happen over time. I think the longer this lockdown goes on, the more it's going to get... It's going to get quite difficult for a lot mm. of people, I think, because people have just had enough. It was interesting. I had a, a chat with my friend from Wales um, this morning, actually, and she's reading about it on the internet and sp- and speaking to some people. And, you know, they had an 18-month lockdown, like an 18-month lockdown. Yeah. And she didn't leave her house for months on end. And here we are, day whatever it is, and it's people are whinging about it. You know, it's, everything's kind of contextual and... and you, I don't know. It's Things are going to change here. I, I, I don't know. And so we talked a little bit about mental health and well-being. What have been some of the challenges for you so far in this lockdown? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I guess it's just kind of put a lot. I had a lot of plans um, coming back from Japan and I was pretty looking forward to getting on with my life. I felt like my life was on hold when I was in Japan, especially the last year or so with the lockdowns. And coming back here, it's like, oh, you know, I can get back involved with my career. I can da-da-da-da-da. I can, because we were looking to make moves with like, you know, in a place down in Nelson. And it's just been, that whole thing's been kind of tipped on its head. And I don't know how long this is going to go on for, but what I do know is that I have to re reconfigure how I think about things. And that's been quite difficult because I'm, I'm a bit like weird about stuff where I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this. I am going to do this. There'll be nothing that's going to get in my way. But in this instance, I can't, there's nothing I can do. It's completely out of my control. So I have to kind of say reconfigure those. And it's, it, it's been not easy, but you know, I do kind of go, right, well, it's not the end of the world. Speaking to my mate this morning was, um, provided some sort of clarity on that. And I was like, okay, well, she just spent months and months on in lockdown by herself, barely working. Uh, it could be a lot worse for me. So it's trying to sort of like navigate those two, two ends of the spectrum, I guess. Mm. What about you? Yeah, for sure. God, that gives it some real perspective, eh? Yeah, I'm the same. Um, of course, I was frustrated that this has happened again. I also had plans. I was supposed to be on annual leave, had a holiday planned. Um, and all of that was disrupted. But kind of similar to you, I feel like we haven't really faced the full brunt of it like others have. Um, I think that we're pretty pretty lucky in that way. Um, but I do know that for some people, um, thinking about like single mums, um, things like that, they, they are really struggling at the moment. Um, and like you talked about, that sense of not knowing what lies ahead, not being able to have plans, not being able to have structure, routine, I think that can create a lot of anxiety for people. Yeah. I think, like you said, there are a lot of people out there who are really hurting. Um, Some people will lose their jobs. Um, You know, just trying to juggle, like if you do manage to keep a job through lockdown, trying to manage that, and then if you've got kids or whatever, and some people who are, like what Quibus said, is like some people... Like home is not their haven, and they mm. and they go to work mm. to escape home. And we, what what happens to those people? I think the larger one of the larger things that's going to come out of this whole epidemic are the longer lasting mental health concerns, 
and we're just sort of scratching the surface at the moment because these these effects are still immediate and they're still on us and we're still working through them. So I, I think it's going to be interesting over the coming years to see how people kind of make their way through. And also you've got to remember like kids and stuff have been taken out of school. New Zealand has not been so bad, but around the world, you know, it's been terrible. So having actually somebody like Quirbus to chat about that, like he was talking about rumination and how we can sort of relook at all those things and, mm. and say like if 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 the way that i'm thinking isn't helpful then mm. you know maybe i should be thinking about something else or, or whatever it was i think this is somebody like Quib is actually really really useful for the conversation we're going to have ahead mm. yeah absolutely i think that was really key what he was saying about the power of our own thoughts our state of mind making sure that if we're having thoughts that aren't helpful that aren't positive and taking us forward that we do something about that instead of like you say ruminating over it I do think, though, that we're still finding it hard to talk about mental health in New Zealand, um, whether that's because of whakama, shame, I'm feeling embarrassed. But, but why do you think that is? Like, particularly from a guy's perspective, what do you think are some of the challenges there with being really open and honest about the mental health impacts of this? No, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm, I, I speak for myself and maybe not even that. I, <laughs> like, I, I, it's, it's a cultural thing, right? You know, we could be talking, we could be having this conversation more, more widely anyway, so I don't know. Nice, so we can be putting ourselves out there, saying that we want to talk, or even saying to our mates, hey, I'm here if you want to have a chat, mm. checking in with one another. Yeah, I mean, even just being like, hey, how you doing? Like, mm. <laughs> like it sounds so silly. As simple as it sounds. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, <sighs> lots of times when I, when we were doing the, the isolation thing in, in Japan. Um, and I didn't have a lot of friends in Japan at that point. And, you know, everybody was over here and everything, but it was so, I really valued those times when people would be like, Hey Mike, what's going on? Mm. Like there's something as simple as that. And so just those little sort of texts and stuff are really useful. I think. I think that's a really nice note to leave it on. Thanks again for listening to us talk dirty. Don't forget, you can subscribe to Dirty Dirty Talk Podcast on all the usual platforms. What are those, Mike? Um, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and a few other places, basically, wherever. We're also on Facebook, too. So We are. Yeah, and, and on Twitter. Ah, and also, you can email us. If you want to come on the show, and, or if you have any feedback or whatever, you can email us at... Dirty Dirty Talk, talk Podcast. podcast. At gmail.com. Yeah, cool. Kia ora. Bye-bye.